Thank you for listening to our church podcast where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. Most of the sermons will be preached by our founding pastor, John Cole. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m. for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. We're starting in Galatians 1. We're going to be moving around quite a bit. I would ask for a little extra grace this morning. My voice has uh, been acting up the last few days, so if you'll just forgive me. Galatians chapter 1 is one of the strongest paragraphs, really, in any of Paul's writing, where he is, he is saying that if anyone who preaches a different gospel than what he had received from Jesus, they are to be cursed. It's very strong language from the Apostle Paul. And that's because the gospel is the central teaching of Christianity. It is the core of everything that we believe. And if you get the gospel wrong, you've missed Christianity entirely. This is the the central message of the church is the gospel. Before we discuss what this true gospel is, I want to look first at the word gospel. If you weren't raised in a church uh, background, you may be unfamiliar with that word, or maybe you've heard it, but you're not exactly sure what it means. Uh, the gospel comes, it comes from a Latin word, God in spell, which means good news. A simple definition of gospel is good news. And it's specifically the good news of how fallen humans can be reconciled to God. I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 15. It provides us a good definition of what this good news is. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So at the core of the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 2, Paul says it's by this gospel that we can be saved. I think it's important at this point to ask, what is it that we're saved from? We talk about salvation a lot. We talk about being saved. What does that mean? What is it that we need to be saved from? And if you'll advance to, to Romans 3, this is a common verse that we use to answer this question. I think it's a good one. It says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We need saving from sin. Since Adam and Eve fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, All humanity after them has been tainted with sin. The Bible says uh, that we are born in sin. The Bible says we we sin in ignorance, meaning we don't even always know when we're sinning. It's just, it's a part of our nature. Uh, Genesis says that every imagination of our heart is evil from our youth. Jeremiah says our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Sin is at the core of who we are. Whether we, we like that reality or not, it's just, it's true. All humans, at their core, we have a sin nature. And sin has many negative consequences. We'll consider two this morning quickly. Number one, sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Mankind was created to be in fellowship with God. And that fellowship was broken when they sinned. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, the main thing that was lost immediately was their their fellowship with God. That relationship was broken. And this is the worst thing about sin. It, It keeps us from having a close relationship with our Creator. 
The second consequence of sin is one that it's important, but it may be overstated sometimes, and that is that the ultimate punishment for sin is eternity in the lake of fire. Scripture is very clear about this, that those who die in their sinful state will spend eternity separated from God in a place of fiery torment, experiencing the wrath of God against them for their sin. But we'll look at Revelation 21.8. It says the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In other words, all sinners, punishment for your sin is an eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. Now, you might be wondering why I said that's an overstated point. What I mean by that is this is not all of what salvation's about. We don't just want to be saved so that we don't go to hell. And one way to, to see if you have a proper understanding of salvation is what if there was no hell? Would you still want to be a Christian? Or is it literally just about avoiding punishment? And I think sometimes we overemphasize hell and we underemphasize the broken relationship with God. And that is the, the ultimate negative consequence of sin. So we aren't merely in need of salvation from hell. We are in need of salvation from sin, of which hell is a consequence. Jesus didn't die on the cross just to spare you from hell while you continue in sin. Jesus died to free you from sin. This is what we need saving from. We read in Matthew 121, uh, this is an angel speaking to Joseph, speaking of Mary, says she'll bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And the name Jesus actually means God saves. The reason Jesus came to earth, and notice it says, he will save them from their sins. It's not just about uh, saving us from wrath and saving us from hell. It is about saving us from the bondage of sin. If you're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve, you'll remember after their sin, uh, they were banished from the Garden of Eden. God kicks them out of the garden. And we see in Genesis 3 the reason that God does this. Genesis 3 says, The Lord God said, Behold, this is after man had sinned. The man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove man out and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. God banished them from the garden of Eden because of the tree of life. Okay, so he didn't just kick them out because they sinned. Uh, God says in in verse 22 of that, that they have become evil. They have become sinful creatures. And if they partake of the tree of life, they're going to live forever in that fallen state. So God didn't just want to give them eternal life. He wanted to give them eternal life without sin. Eternal life wasn't all that they needed. They needed to be freed from sin. Maybe a good illustration of this is in Greek mythology, there, there's a story of a, a supposed God who had been given the gift of immortality. He could not die but he had not been given the gift of eternal youth. And so year after year, he gets older and older and older until eventually he's crippled in a bed. He can't move. He's suffering. and He just wants to die, but he can't. And this is a good illustration, I think, of what it would be like if God allowed Adam and Eve to eat of that tree of life. They would have continued living, but in a miserable, sinful state. And as a, as a demonstration of God's mercy, he didn't want us to live that way. He didn't just want to give us eternal life. He wanted to give us eternal life without sin. So my point here is what we need saving from isn't merely hell, as if we'd be fine if hell didn't exist. We need saving from sin. 
The primary need that each one of us sinners has is to be freed from our sin. So at this point, we're going to transition to First Peter chapter 2, where Peter gives us rather the answer to how this salvation can take place. First Peter 2.24 says, speaking of Jesus, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, so speaking of Christ's death on the cross, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. At the core of the gospel is the concept of substitution. Uh, theologians refer to it as substitutionary atonement, and that might sound confusing. Basically, uh, what it means is that when Jesus died on the cross, he died in your place. He was taking our sin on himself. And when Jesus was punished on the cross and, and he gave his life, he was taking the wrath of God against himself for our sin. In other words, he was our substitute. He died in our place. There's three results of this substitutionary death. Number one, substitution results in, in our being forgiven for the sins that we've committed. Because of the death of Christ, we can be forgiven for our sins. He took our punishment. Ephesians 1.7 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Notice it's through his blood that we have the forgiveness of sins. Speaking of the death of Christ on the cross. The substitutionary death of Christ also allows us to have the righteousness of Christ applied to our account. And this is a, an incredible concept that when Jesus looks at us after we've accepted Christ as our Savior, we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he, he hath made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is known as the doctrine of imputation, that when Jesus died on the cross, an exchange took place. He took our sins, he paid the debt for our sins, and he offers us his righteousness. Jesus lived a sinless life and died bearing our sins, and when we are saved by his death, we receive not only forgiveness of sins, but we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our former sins. Jesus paid for those. Instead, what he sees is the righteousness of his own son. This substitutionary death thirdly allows the relationship with God that had been broken by sin to be restored. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also has suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. This is the good news of the gospel. When Jesus suffered on the cross for our sins, he allows us a way to be reconciled to God. Now, I want to transition here into looking at some counterfeit gospels. Again, that passage we read at the beginning in Galatians, Paul announces a, a curse and anathema against anyone who preaches another gospel. So I want us to look at three distortions of the gospel, and many have attempted to preach a different gospel. Many have distorted or perverted the gospel, as Paul says. We'll start in, um, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. This is specifically the false gospel that Paul is preaching against throughout the book of Galatians. If you take the time to read through it, you'll see over and over, Paul is preaching against this gospel of works. Galatians 2.16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So the first counterfeit gospel is a gospel of works, specifically a gospel that says uh, you have to follow the works of the Old Testament law in order to be saved. And that's what many uh, false teachers of Paul's day were saying. 
They were saying that the death of Christ wasn't enough. You have to live in perfect obedience to the Old Testament in order to be saved. And Paul says that's not true. That's a perversion of the gospel. This counterfeit gospel is mentioned often throughout the New Testament. And Paul is particularly concerned that people not be deceived by this. He wants them to understand that there is no way to earn salvation by works. And today we don't talk as much about Old Testament works, but there are many false teachers that claim you can earn salvation, you can earn forgiveness of sins by your own works, by doing good things, by coming to church, or by following every letter of the law, that you will earn righteousness. And that's not true. First of all, it doesn't even make practical sense. If, if someone's committed a crime, they don't get off the hook just because they've done some other good things. A crime has to be punished. We can't just say, well, I, someone committed murder, but they're not going to go to jail because you know they only did it once. And uh, they've done all these other good things. They've given to charity. They go to church. Well, that's irrelevant. If they committed the murder, they need to be punished for that. And so the only way that we can be freed from the punishment for our sin is through the death of Jesus Christ. We cannot earn righteousness. We can't earn God's favor. God is perfect. And you and I, anybody that knows us well knows we're not perfect. And we have no hope of earning righteousness by our own works. No amount of good works can make up for the sins that we've committed. Ephesians 2 makes this clear. It says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This false gospel is the greatest lie of much teaching in religions all over the world and throughout history, that you can earn salvation by works, and that is simply not a biblical understanding of the gospel. So the first, first counterfeit gospel is a gospel of works, but another counterfeit gospel that is very prevalent today is a gospel apart from Christ. What I mean by that is a gospel that says Jesus is one way among many, that we can, we can get to God, we can achieve heaven through other means. And again, this is clearly taught against in Scripture. Consider John 14, 6. This is Jesus himself speaking. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. All roads do not lead to heaven. Jesus is the only way. Acts 4, 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is the only way of salvation. It is through the death of Christ that we can be forgiven of sins and reconciled to God. There is no other way. And so that may sound harsh, that may sound uh, exclusive, but the gospel is exclusive. The Bible makes very clear that Jesus Christ and his death on the cross is the only satisfaction for the wrath of God. And if we have hope of being saved from our sins, it's through Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, those, those first two counterfeit gospels are completely false gospels. A, a gospel of works and a gospel apart from Christ, there is no biblical truth to that. This next gospel I want to look at, I believe it's also a distortion of the gospel, but it's not quite as extreme. It's a little more subtle uh, because it's, it's not really a false gospel. It's just an incomplete gospel. And this is a gospel without repentance. This gospel says that all one must do to be forgiven of sins is believe Jesus died on the cross. And that's pretty much it. And there's variations within that. Uh, some would say that literally just a moment of mental agreement with the facts of the gospel, that's enough to save you. Other people would say you have to place your faith and trust on Jesus to save you and, and maybe ask him in a prayer to forgive your sins. But that's still an almost gospel because it's it's, not, it's a repentance-free gospel. It's merely a belief on Christ. 
And the reason I call it an almost gospel is it's not completely wrong. That is an aspect of the gospel. I just think it's an incomplete presentation. So we'll look here at 1 Mark chapter 1. This is Jesus' first sermon, you might call it. This is his uh, introduction to his ministry. It says that he was preaching throughout all Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God in verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So Jesus' message was to repent, excuse me, and believe the gospel. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? So based on these two passages, whatever the gospel is, uh, the proper response to the gospel is twofold. It is something to be believed, and it is something to be obeyed. The gospel does not save everyone. We need to be clear about this. We don't believe in universalism. Just because Jesus died, that doesn't mean everyone in all the world is, is going to heaven. There is a response that is required to the gospel. And the response is twofold. It is believing and it is obeying the gospel. And to use more uh, common, maybe vernacular in Christian circles, faith and repentance. And these are terms throughout scripture. This is a twofold response to the gospel. It's not just one or the other, it is both. So the gospel, gospel again, it means good news, and it's the good news that Jesus died to free us from sin. And the saving response to the gospel is faith and repentance. The Bible repeatedly teaches faith and repentance uh, to be the proper response to the gospel. For example, Paul said in Acts chapter 20 uh, that he kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, speaking to the, the church in Ephesus, but have showed you and have taught publicly and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a twofold response of faith and repentance. And I'd like for us to consider these two words, faith and repentance, to help define and clarify what they mean. Uh, first of all, let's consider the word faith. What does it mean to have saving faith? And what does it mean to believe on Christ? I think one of the greatest examples of faith in the Bible is Abraham. And so we'll consider him just for a moment. Hebrews 11.8 says that by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. If you've read through Genesis, you know this story that God appears to Abraham and he tells him, I want you to leave your family, I want you to leave your homeland, I want you to leave all your, everything that you have where you've grown up your whole life, I want you to go out and follow me. And he doesn't tell him where he's going. He just says, leave. Abraham leaves. He picks up his stuff and, and he takes off. That is faith. <laughs> that takes an incredible amount of faith. Uh, by the way, God doesn't tell Abraham that when he gets to this land that he's leading him to, there's going to be enemies there that he's going to have to fight. All of that Abraham doesn't know. He just follows God. And so this is a perfect example of faith because it's not merely a mental belief. Abraham had to actually do something. He had to place his dependence and his trust on God, that what God was telling him was true. In order for, for Abraham to pick up his stuff and leave, he had to have a lot of confidence that God was telling him the truth and that God wasn't just leading him nowhere. He believed in God enough to exercise that faith. So faith is believing with limited evidence, but it's also more than that. It's trusting God. It's placing your dependence on God. We, we use the illustration of a chair often, that we don't just believe Faith is not just believing a chair can support me. It's actually sitting down. You're placing your faith in that chair. And in the same way, when, when we're saved, the proper response to the gospel is to place your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you. It's not a faith 
of simply believing Jesus died on the cross, but it's placing your trust in him. The second part of that saving response to the gospel is repentance, as we said, and this is an attitude of the heart that results in a change of behavior. It's literally, the word means a turning of the mind. So it is an internal transition in your heart that takes place at the moment of salvation. It's important that we differentiate between attitudes and actions. Repentance leads to actions, but it is not a work. It's not like you have to change your life in order to be saved. No, no. It's an attitude of the heart that says, I am surrendering to God. I'm willing to follow him. And actions follow repentance. So for this, we'll look at Ezekiel 18. And don't be scared of Ezekiel. There's some good stuff in there, even if a few chapters are confusing. Uh, Ezekiel 18, starting verse 27. This is a good definition uh, to help us understand repentance. It says, again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed, and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. Because he considereth, notice this, this is an internal change of mind. He considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed. He shall surely live, and he shall not die. Yet saith the house of Israel, the way of the Lord is not equal, O house of Israel. Are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal? Verse 30, therefore I will judge you. O house of Israel, everyone, according to his ways, saith the Lord God, repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. So this is just a good uh, passage to define repentance. It's it's creating in yourself, like it says, a new heart and a new spirit. There's a change of your attitude that is willing to follow God, turning from sin to God. And we see an emphasis in these verses on the heart. So saving repentance is not just turning from sin, but turning to God. We see that in those verses. Also in Acts chapter 26, this is Paul speaking. He says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem, and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, and do works meet for repentance. So here there's a turning from to God. It's, it's not just turning from sin, it is turning with a commitment to follow the Lord. Uh, repentance was the message throughout the New Testament. We see this as the theme of Christ's ministry, I believe. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came for the purpose of calling sinners to repent. This was the message of John the Baptist before Christ. We see in Mark chapter 1, John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Repentance was the conclusion to Peter's famous sermon on the day of Pentecost. We see in Acts chapter 2, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, speaking of the crowd listening uh, to Peter preaching, they were pricked in the heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? In other words, what's the response to this news that Christ uh, died on the cross and was crucified as the Lord and as the Messiah. Verse 38, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The very next chapter, Peter has a, a chance to preach again, and he, his message is the same. He says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. This is the message of Christ, the message of John the Baptist, the message of the apostles. 
And this is also the message that we've been commissioned to preach. We see in Luke 24, this is Jesus talking about himself. He says, He said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So this is the gospel. Jesus died bearing our sins in order to free us from sin and to restore us to fellowship with our Creator. And all who respond to the gospel with faith and repentance, that twofold response to this good news, their sins are immediately forgiven and they are declared to be righteous as Jesus. This is what the Bible calls justification. It's not a gospel of works where we try to earn God's forgiveness by uh, doing good things or by keeping the Old Testament law. It's not a gospel apart from Christ, nullifying the death of Christ. Because if we can be saved apart from Jesus, why did Jesus die on a cross? It makes it of, of no meaning. This is not a gospel of cheap grace where we think that we can just get our ticket punched and say, okay, I believe the gospel, and then go live like the devil for the rest of our life. This is a gospel of transformation. As Paul said, it's the power of God unto salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a life-transforming power. And in conclusion this morning, I'd like for us to turn to one final passage. I haven't asked you to turn anywhere but Galatians at this point, but I do want us to look at Romans chapter 6. This is a, a great passage to study. And if you're wanting to understand the gospel and salvation more, Romans is the book for you. It uh, doesn't matter how long you've been saved. If you think you know everything about the gospel, read Romans. There's some new stuff there. Uh, it, the gospel is it's so core, and in one sense, the gospel is so simple. And yet, at the same time, it's so beautiful and complex, and there's so many layers to it, that studying it is just a, it's an endless journey. The book of Romans is all about the gospel. It's a, a treatise on the subject of salvation, if you will. And here in Romans chapter 6, we see a description of what new life in Christ looks like. What does it mean to be saved? What does it look like to be a Christian? Well, we'll begin in verse 16, where Paul says, Know ye not, that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked, verse 17, that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. This is speaking of the gospel. So they used to be servants of sin, but then they obeyed the gospel that was delivered to them. Verse 18, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants to righteousness, unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? Speaking of their former life before salvation. For the end of those things is death. Verse 22, But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Many of us are familiar with that last verse. A lot of us have it memorized, but we have it memorized apart from the context. It's not just that God offers us free life. It's an exchange of masters. This is clear throughout the chapter, especially in verse 22. It says, when you're saved, you're, you're made free from sin and you become a servant of God, resulting in holiness and the end, everlasting life. But this isn't servitude to a cruel master like sin. This is servitude to a gracious and loving master, one who has our best interests at heart. 
It's a privilege, in other words, to be a servant of the king. This is why this can seem like a paradox if you look at verses 22 and 23. 22 makes salvation look like uh, you're becoming a servant to God. You're becoming a slave. And then verse 23 says, no, it's a gift. But the reality is it's both. It is a privilege to become a servant of the king. I think the longer we're saved, the more we understand that seeming paradox, that salvation is both servitude to God. It is a commitment to become a servant of God. And yet it's also a gift. This is the gospel. God offers freedom from sin and eternal life to all who will believe the gospel, repenting of sin and turn to God in faith. So in conclusion, let me just ask you, have you accepted the gift of eternal life? Have you become a servant of God or are you still serving sin? If you're not sure that you've truly repented and placed your faith in Christ, I would encourage you to do that today. And if you have questions about that, if you're not sure uh, that you fully understand this, please talk to one of us. There are many people in this room who would love to speak with you uh, further about this. This is what we're all about. This is the, the main message that we have to preach. If I, could, if I could send one message to every person in this community, it would be what I'm preaching this morning, that Jesus Christ died on the cross and he offers freedom from sin and eternal life to you. If you're a Christian, I would encourage you to continue growing in your understanding of the gospel. Don't think of the gospel as something uh, for unsaved people. This is our message. This is for us as well. Christians need to know the gospel. We need to study the gospel. And a book like Romans is a great place to start. There's so many layers to this, as I mentioned. And the more you study scripture and the more you study uh, these, especially these epistles in the New Testament, the more your understanding and your appreciation of what God has done for us will grow. The gospel is really good news. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.